Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel. And today we're talking to Dr. Anna Marine Lauda about her book, Streetwalking, LGBTQ Lives and Protests in the Dominican Republic, published by Rutgers University Press. Dr. Lara, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming um, and telling us about your book. And so your book is entitled Streetwalking, and it ethnographically renders LGBTQ lives, um, experiences, and resistance in the Dominican Republic. And so to start the interview, can you tell us some background about yourself and tell us how you came to write this book? Absolutely. So this book is an outgrowth of my dissertation research from graduate school. And basically, when I set out to conduct dissertation research, I was um, a student in the joint program in African American Studies and Anthropology at Yale University. And I had initially wanted to focus on lesbian artists in the Dominican Republic, and specifically lesbian artists who are also activists. Um, When I actually went to the field in 2010, to meet with lesbian artists who are also activists, they, uh, in conversation with me, you know, me in conversation with them, um, they were really clear that they were very focused on what was happening uh, locally in the movement and that they weren't necessarily interested in being featured in sort of interviews or being interviewed and being part of a larger intellectual project. And that for me, you know, it was really, it was a very important intervention on their part with me. And, and I asked them at that moment, you know, what, what knowledge would be useful to the movement? What knowledge would be useful to you as artists? And that was kind of the inception of this project was through those conversations that led to the development of questions about the role of the Catholic Church in politics in the Dominican Republic. So um, it's important to know that when I was talking with lesbian activists and artists in the Dominican Republic, I was also coming to them not just as a researcher working on a PhD, but also as an activist and an artist myself, as a a novelist and a poet, and as an um, LGBTQ rights activist who has uh, done work with human rights organizations since the late 90s. And so that was all part of that mix and that conversation, those sets of conversations and um, the determination about what ultimately my research would be about, um, which is in the service of the LGBTQ community in the Dominican Republic. Um, It's, it, it turned into something that actually aligned greatly with my own interests uh, and my own questions about, you know, why, why uh, Christian institutions are invested in um, policies of hetero complementarity and in policies around gender binary, you know, and just kind of instituting and perpetuating gender binaries, both in theology and in, in practice um, and in the influence on political state associations, nation states. Um, And so it turned into, it turned into street walking. Um, It turned into some other things too, but uh, this was the book that really came out of that research. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, So the, the global and the local seem really entangled in your book and your interlocutors appear to make themselves legible to outside, or in a way they have to make themselves legible to outside LGBTQ struggles, such as those in the United States and Europe, and yet they have their own local particularities. And I I saw this tension, that this tension was reflected maybe in your terminology that doesn't map exactly onto U.S. terms. Um, And so, because you use the term um, LGBTQ, but you use the term trans with a star and 
queer is spelled Q-U-I-R. And so I was wondering if you could talk about um, these these terms that you use to identify the people that you're working with. Absolutely. Activists are a super savvy bunch of people. Uh, these are people who are trained, but also committed to having sharp political analyses and sharp social analyses and a really uh, strong analysis of power, right? And so I was walking with and hanging out with people who are really super sharp and super critical and super aware. And I I love that about the group of people I was spending time with. Um, and some of the, you know, some of our conversations uh, around what they were facing, you know, uh, intersected with my own interests and questions about the expression of identity, right? The, the choice to identify as lesbian or bisexual or gay or transgender or queer. Um, knowing that in the Dominican Republic, like there's this, what Carlos de Seno calls a tacit subjectivity. There's this kind of cultural understanding that what is known is not said, right? And that people, a lot of people navigate their families and navigate their neighborhoods and navigate their communities where everybody knows that they're gay or everybody knows that they're trans, but nobody really talks about it, right? And so there's this kind of social pact or agreement to, to know, but to not say, and that the process of saying can sometimes, and this is what Carlos de Sena argues, can sometimes disarticulate and disorder the world. Well, I wanted to know in a context where people have different concepts of gender, different understandings of gender and sexuality, right? Very fluid ideas and understandings of sexuality where like you can sleep, you know, people will sleep with whoever they want. It doesn't necessarily make them one thing or the other. Um, and what, what does it mean that in that context, people, certain groups of people were choosing to articulate a lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, or queer identity? They were choosing this identity. They were choosing this political subjectivity. I was really amazed by that and trying to understand it at the same time that the very sharp and awesome activists I was hanging out with were talking to me about all of their critiques of Christian coloniality of what they call Christian coloniality. And well, they call, you know, Christian oppression. And I, I theorize as Christian coloniality. Um, and so, you know, their choice in many, many respects, their choices to identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, or queer, LGBTQ, often had to do with the ways in which they were building transnational community and how they understood their own local struggles in relationship to what was happening in Nicaragua or what was happening in Honduras or what was happening in Brazil or Venezuela. Um, these are people who are incredibly networked across transnational, transterritorial spaces. So, you know, they, they are doing local politics at the same time that they're going to regional gatherings for Latin American feminists or like regional or international gatherings for HIV, um, people living and affected by HIV and AIDS, um, or people who are part of international transgender rights organizations, right? Or that, you know, members of the International Lesbian and Gay Association out of Europe and the European Union. So these are people who have, these are activists, these are subjects who have made an intentional effort to build community and build relationships, not only locally around issues affecting LGBTQ rights and lives, but also transnationally. I see this strategy as one that's informed by the strategy employed by Dominicans of Haitian descent. So Dominicans of Haitian descent um, are incredibly discriminated against in the Dominican Republic. Uh, many are stateless. Many had their citizenship revoked in the 2013 Supreme Court decision that basically uh, denationalized any person of Haitian descent back, you know, who was born in the country as far back as 1929. Um, well, this struggle for Dominicans of Haitian descent began in the 1990s when the denationalization and the creation of stateless peoples first began to happen. And one of the primary strategies of, the, of that movement was to reach out 
to um, other organizations and groups of people outside of the Dominican Republic was to rely on human rights frameworks, right? Or the um, Organization of American States or the Inter-American Court as a way to put pressure on local uh, institutions. Uh, The feminist movement in the Dominican Republic, uh, which included people who were fighting on, who, who have been fighting on behalf of the rights of Dominicans of Haitian descent, has also employed that strategy going back to 1979, when a lot of Dominican feminists went to the Latin American, fem, you know, feminist encuentros, the gatherings in Bolivia and Mexico, and like through the process of going to those gatherings, had consciousness raising experiences that then informed the work that they did back home in the Dominican Republic. Well, that transnational framework, you know, was part of what informed the development of Afro-Dominican women's groups, right? Like Casa Afro in Dominican Republic, like these solidarity networks among Dominican uh, feminists with other Afro-descendant feminists in the Caribbean region and in Latin America. And so that logic of always being in solidarity with other people has been part of other movements and really, really undergirds the LGBTQ movement in the Dominican Republic. There's also a very strategic understanding that if you, you know, if you access right these funding sources towards the the well-being of your movement or towards doing the work of your movement, um, that there's a way in which you have to follow fall into the logics and fall into the language and the definitions of LGBTQ and uh, struggles, human rights struggles and civil rights struggles internationally. And I call that strategic universalism, right? The idea of very, very clearly articulating uh, in a public way a universal, a universalized, homogenized identity uh, for the purposes of securing uh, funding and resources and uh, being able to function within the confines created by the global north. Um, in communities in the global south. So um, queer, uh, it has an interesting story. Uh, The idea of queer, you know, queer, Q-U-E-E-R, being an English word, right, that was taken up by the Latin American academies, uh, in particular in the Southern Cones in Argentina and Chile uh, and Brazil. Uh, This is a term that was taken up by elite and this has been critiqued by others like Joseph Pierce and Yuderquis Espinosa Muñoz. It was taken up by elites, academic elites, as this encompassing term that was supposed to have all of this radical uh, potential, but then ended up in the context of Latin America reinforcing an, uh, the idea of a global north uh, hegemony over the experiences of LGBTQ people in the South. And so in the Dominican Republic, I had uh, friends and, you know, and act- activists who were saying to me, well, we're not queer, like in the North American sense of queer, we're queer, you know, with the I, with the accent, right? We are, our queerness is rooted specifically in the Spanish language, and it's rooted in the, our experiences as people from the, um, the Spanish-speaking Caribbean and Latin America, as much as it's rooted in the experiences that we have as Caribbean peoples. And so that differentiation was important to my interlocutors and to my friends, like to, to, to make it explicit that their queer identity um, is about a performance of explicitly queer Caribbeanness and queer Latinoness, you know, Latinidad um, uh, in the context of the Dominican Republic. Uh, and, uh, the trans with the star comes from Solimar Otero, who is also citing Jack Halberstram, and this idea of like the trans being an opening to multiple possibilities. In the context of the Dominican Republic, right, you could be transgenero, you could be transformista, um, you know, you could be transsexual, and these are different, these are nuanced understandings of how gender difference expresses itself. So in my text, I wanted to make that that nuancing and that always perpetual p- possibility really visible in the writing itself. And you, and you really did a great a great job of that as well, um, making that legible within the, within the terminology. So, and so you, you mentioned this in your, um, in your, what you previously said, your idea of um, Christian coloniality. And so that's where I turn to next. 
um, because you locate the Catholic Church and Christianity as a site of LGBTQ oppression in the Dominican Republic. And you refer specifically to um, Christian ideas of moral personhood. Mm -hmm. The the question is generally like, how does Christianity function to marginalize LGBTQ peoples and communities? And, and I think you also maybe talked about this as well. So, um, but um, how did your, did you, was it your interlocutors that pointed you towards Christianity as the specific site um, that they must contend with, with, with their activism? Thank you. Yes, absolutely. So um, hanging out and walking with my, interlocutors, my friends, and uh, LGBTQ activists, a lot of times we were spending time together in this colonial city of the of Santo Domingo, of the capital city, Santo Domingo. And the colonial city is, you know, about one and a half square miles. Like it's, it's not a very large area. Uh, and it is filled with Catholic institutions, right? So monasteries and churches and cathedrals and basilicas and, and, altars and um and this this christian colonial architecture is very very real it's very very celebrated by the dominican state and it's uh protected by you know as a unesco world heritage site and here we are lgbtq people hanging out in these spaces and you know the cardinal of the catholic church at the time Cardinal Lopez Rodriguez, who has since been removed, you know, he's talking about how we're like, we are the social trash, you know, that needs to be cleaned up in the colonial city, right? So you have this figure who is part of the the patronage organization that protects this colonial site and city. And then you have us as LGBT activists actually taking up space, right? The gay bars are in the colonial city. Like our hangout spots are in the colonial city. Sometimes the activism, this is what becomes really important. What I was noticing as someone who is an LGBT activist in the United States, when I go to protests in the U.S. or have gone in the past, it's always in front of City Hall, or it's always in front of the architecture of civic institutions, right? And public spaces like Market Street in San Francisco or in New York City in front of the New York City Hall or, you know, Central Square, Central Park or in Austin, Texas, right? Like marching down Congress Avenue, right? There's this way in which protest is shaped around civic institutions. Well, when I was accompanying activists in the DR, where were we going to protest? The cathedral, the churches, the monastery, right? The um, the the places where Christian evangelical ministers and Catholic priests were coming together to, like, you know, make statements against, uh, you know, James Brewster, the U.S. ambassador, openly gay U.S. ambassador, who was appointed there, right? So I, it really struck me that we were going to churches, and I. I asked, I was like, why are we protesting in front of churches? And the answer over and over again is, well, the church is an unofficial fourth seat in the government, right? There there are ways in which that relationship is official because of the, the agreement signed by the Vatican and the Dominican government in 1954, the Concordat, but there are ways in which it's unofficial. And that unofficial space, right, that's, that's fungible, it's like huge and and also like always shifting depending on what's happening is the space where we as LGBT activists, LGBTQ activists experience so much violence, right? Because the church will cut on mass and Sunday mass will say, don't support that candidate because they support gay rights. And so the entire uh, congregation will not support that candidate because that candidate supports gay rights. You know, in the morning, the cardinal will make a statement talking about us as social trash, lacra socialis, and in the afternoon, the police are sweeping us into trucks, right? And so the ways in which the activists were identifying these really clear relationships between what was happening in the speech acts of Christian leaders um, and then what was what was taking place with the police forces and government institutions as a result of those speech acts by those Christian leaders was really palpable and really apparent. And it led me to theorize Christian coloniality. Um, and And I talk about Christian coloniality as the discursive and material intersections of Christian theologies with the construction of colonial being, knowledge, and power. And so this idea that modernity is born out of Christian colonial institutions, 
places like the colonial city of Santo Domingo being a prime example, but also how Christian sites like the Dominican Monastery, um, also in Santo Domingo, right? How that became the site of the Montesino Sermon in 1511, where slavery is, you know, the slavery of indigenous people is condemned. And out of that unfolds a whole new iteration of slavery and the development of the African slave trade. Um, You know, thinking about the ways in which, for example, Dominican public education is Christian by default um, and, and what that means in terms of access to sexual education or access to education or historical narratives that are not about reinforcing a colonial identity. Um, and it's also about the ways in which Christian coloniality structures personhood and structures being so that, for example, the, the very important, right? One of the important tenets of Christianity is uh, heterosexual and heteronormative complementarity, right? This idea that there are men and that there are women and that anything else is an aberration and a sin. And, and in other words, doesn't exist in the natural order, right? In, a, in the Aquinian natural order of things. Um, and that men and women specifically are meant to pair up with each other for the purposes of reproduction, that uh, has been so normalized and it has been generalized to our understandings of what secular personhood are so that we find ourselves having to push back against the gender binaries. We find ourselves having to push back against the racialized hierarchies that were produced through Christian coloniality. We find ourselves having to, to push back against the idea of heterocomplementarity because these ideas were so successfully cemented and set, you know, and, 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 literally embedded within modern nation state architecture um, and social and civic values and worldviews that, that anything that's not that is a pushback against that. Um, And, and so I try to make that apparent. I try to make the levels of Christian coloniality um, very apparent in this work and then talk about how LGBT activists um, are contending with that in these very, very real ways um, that include resisting arrest to fighting to retain employment, um, housing, and all kinds of things that, you know, even a place in their family, right, in a context in which the family is charged with raising good Christian children. Um, so, yeah, I could keep going, but I, I, I'm happy to move on to yeah no I think that's I think that's great and we'll, we'll move on to the pushback and I think that that was really that was really interesting to think about how out of the praxis of the protest you notice these differences of where of where people are actually protesting I think that's really important to think about um, you know those of us who study activism and social movements um, it's like you never you don't necessarily know where these insights are going to come from um, and so you have to just keep your eyes open to see what people are doing um, and why, and, you know, and think about that. Um, and so you talk about like the, the, you know, the pushback against Christian coloniality. Um, and so you theorize Dominican um, LGBTQ life and protest through the idea of streetwalking, which is, of course, the title of the book. And so you write, and I'm going to quote from the book um, from page 23, that Streetwalking allows us to embody a mode of differential consciousness through life and protest, specifically and explicitly because we can upend and reconfigure Christian colonial expectations, boundaries, and structures central to maintaining the Catholic Hispanic nation state. And so I thought this, obviously this concept, since it was the, you know, the title, it, it you know, pulls the entire book together um, and it can mean, you know, different things probably in, in different moments. Um, and so I wondered if you could tell us about this concept of streetwalking um, and how it contributes to, to our understandings of resistance. Um, and if you also wanted to share maybe some of the theorists that you drew from to, to develop this concept in your theory. Absolutely. Um, thank you. I'm going to quote, and I want to thank Yolanda Martinez San Miguel for 
for, re, you know, highlighting this when um, she presented my book a couple weeks ago um, at the University of Oregon. But uh, I really draw from Maria Lugones, who is a lesbian philosopher, Latin American philosopher. She recently died um, last year. And uh, she was such an, an incredible theorist of queer life, of lesbian life, of gender, of sexuality. Um, and so I drew from her theorization of streetwalkers, right? And I'm going to just read briefly from her, uh, from her book, uh, Pilgrimages, where she talks about the streetwalker. So she says, the streetwalker theorist is in search of tactical strategic defiances and cultivates an ear for multiplicity in interlocution, multiplicity in the interactive process of intention formation in perceptions and meaning making. The ear for the powerful seduction of common sense is also prepared for listening to new sense, remade, intervened, contested sense by those who are not agents. In a fragmented society, contestatory interactions often contest univocally along one axis of domination. Strategically, la callejera, the streetwalker, begins to hear the power of the logic of uh, univocity and the multiplicity drowned by univocal contestations. She devises the tactical strategic practice of hearing interactive contestatory acts of sense-making as negotiated from within a complex interrelation of differences. She hears contestations that are univocal as at the same time defiant of and compliant with the logic of systems of domination. So that's from page 222 um, in Maria Lugones' Pilgrimages. And that really, when I encountered her theory of the streetwalker, that really just got me thinking so deeply because, yeah, we were, I mean, as activists, you know, as queer people uh, in the Dominican landscape, in the literature, queer people have already, and specifically gay men and trans women, have already always been configured as prostitutes. And Dominican women in the literature on sexuality in the Caribbean are also already con- configured as prostitutes. And I was like, oh yeah, we're like the streetwalkers, right? The streetwalker being the prostitute, being the one who's always on the street. And I said, that's you know that's the way in which our, the the subjectivity of women and queer people in the Caribbean and specifically the DR is already under always understood right and it's discursively discussed that way and 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 then I took it a step further and I said well we're not just streetwalkers doing sex work some of us are doing you know some of us are doing sex work yes we're also streetwalkers because we're hitting the streets. And it's in the streets that we have our confrontations. It's in the streets that we're confronting and we're, we're challenging homophobia and transphobia. It's in the streets that we're dying. It's in the streets that we're laughing. It's in the streets that we're hanging out. And so I started to think about my interlocutors and my friends and, and LGBTQ activists. I started thinking about us as streetwalkers, But then in the context of my book, I realized that I'm not comfortable. I I struggle with the idea of subjectivity as something that is locked into a subjective position, right? Or an identification. And so I changed it to street walking because for me, what also became really clear is that LGBTQ activists are always in construction in in relationship to where we're walking, how we're walking and what we're doing, right? So that in one in one body you can be the sex worker who's on the street at night, you know, in that same body or this you're the trans activist who is confronting the same police who was trying to arrest you for street walking, you know, for prostitution the night before or to detain you because you didn't have your ID card and they want to set, you know, they want to deport you. Like and so this this way in which the street became really really a powerful space for the articulation of LGBTQ political subjectivity in life. Um, and I think that, you know, thinking about streetwalking and then also thinking about Chela Sandoval's idea of decolonial consciousness and Audre Lorde's concept of the transformation of silence, those came together to really help me articulate how streetwalking can rupture and expose Christian colonial dichotomies in space um, and how queer people, LGBTQ people specifically can rupture public and private divides through just the act of existing, right? Because 
the things that are supposed to be private, tucked away, masked and unknown and unknowable, our sex, our sexuality, our sexual desire, our sexual joy, like our gender, just goes all out there, whether we're at home or out on the street, you know, we bring the street home and we take the, you know, we take home with us out onto the street. And so there's this, this relational process that's always taking place and how at any point, any of us can become the streetwalker, right? We, any of us can suddenly enter into the, into the space of streetwalking. Um, and to highlight that, I use an example of a heterosexual couple uh, where the one of the cup, members of the couple um, was Dominican and the other one was Dominican of Haitian descent, and they ha- kiss each other on the street, right? They just kiss each other. Now, mind you, this is a context where, like, you go to the beach and people are like making out, like nobody's business, right? And there are certain there are certain spaces where people can make out and nobody cares, right? These spaces of exception. Well, these, this couple was on the street in the capital city. They were at work. They were just kissing each other goodbye, right? As one person was headed one place and the other person headed another. And they were arrested and threatened with deportation. They, In that instance, they were part of the streetwalking narrative of, of this idea of, you know, who's transgressing Christian colonial morality. And, you know, they, for some reason, because they were black people, dark skinned people, who were kissing in the public space, it became this opportunity to talk about the morality of dark-skinned Dominicans, the morality of Dominicans of Haitian descent. And the LGBTQ activists immediately responded to this and staged a kiss-in, right? A besaton, where like they marched again through the colonial city to the uh, in front, to land in front of the Catholic cathedral and just kiss each other. And it didn't matter, you know, who you were kissing, it didn't matter gender, it didn't matter race or color, right? That those things, the, the transgression of the expectations of who was supposed to kiss who were, were completely disrupted through that protest, that act of protest. Well, that's a way in which I try to articulate what this idea of streetwalking is. Any of us can be streetwalking at any moment, even when we're not aware of it. And then, you know, because our being, our person disrupts Christian colonial ideas of personhood, of who's supposed to be in the space. And then we can turn that around and deploy, you know, strategies of resistance and strategies of, uh, of struggle and, and confrontation to change the script and to create spaces of power and agency. Um, through our actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, and you point to uh, several different actions um, in the in the in the following chapters of the book, um, and I, that's what I wanted to turn to next. Um, so, in the book, it seems like um, like violence is kind of a constant present throughout the book. It's enacted against you um, and your friends and the people you're working with, and it's kind of at every turn. Um, yet you identify these particular practices of resistance that are included, um, I guess, under the umbrella of your idea of streetwalking. And so you, one of them is this idea of flipping the script, and you write about it as a speech act and um, collective embodied actions that shift discourses. And so I wondered if you could tell us about flipping the script, um, how you see it being enacted, and maybe give us an example of, of it at work. Sure. So flipping the script is a um, is a concept that I drew from African-American scholarship, and it refers to a mode of shifting discourse. Uh, So in Spanish, you know, in in Dominican Spanish specifically, you could talk about una moriqueta, right, like giving shade or reading somebody um, or basically using the same language to then change the meaning of that language, right? So it's a way of signifying, it's a way of unfixing meaning and power. Uh, It's a way in which uh, LGBTQ activists take narratives that are placed upon them and then shift the basis of that narrative and completely undo the expectations, right? Um, And so, you know, there's a very simple, there's a very simple example, right? So one of the years when I was flying into the Dominican Republic, uh, normally I 
dress a little bit more femininely to have less problems crossing the border. But I can be pretty butch sometimes too. And one year I was crossing the border in, in my more butch incarnation. And the immigration officer chose to stop me. Uh, well, f- what she did was the man in front of me, she took his passport and she called me over, asked me to give her my passport. And she had me and this random man who was as confused as I was. We were both like, why are we standing here together at the immigration desk? She had us standing next to each other and she held the passports up next to us. And, you know, it was making some comment about how my name, you know, she's like, oh, you know, you're the if you want to be a man, you know, like she's making some comment about my gender presentation and how it doesn't align with my name and the passport. And she's trying to get the man to participate in, the, in making fun of me, you know, and I kind of let her go on for a, a little while. And then I said, wow, you must really need glasses if you're not able to see me clearly and understand that the person in that picture is me, right? Something to that effect. But it, it's a, it was like a form of tigeraje, right? Like I flipped the script on her. She didn't know what to say to that. She didn't was not expecting me to somehow make it about a, some deficiency on her part, right? She assumed that her authority was intact and that by virtue of her authority that I was going to just stay silent and take the insults and also like let her bully me into whatever decision she could make in that moment about whether or not to let me into the country, Um, But taking a cue from my own cultural understandings of power um, and how and how I have seen other people work with flipping the script, I flipped the script on her. I, I made it about this idea that maybe she needed some assistance in seeing clearly, right? And seeing more clearly as someone who wears glasses, right? There was also this kind of like double entendre of like, I see you and I see you not seeing me, right? Um, That's one example, but also just more generally for how Dominican activists talk about dignity and talk about respect. And so a lot of the literature in the Caribbean theorizes respect under very heteronormative presumptions. Um, The idea that respect is about masculinity and explicitly about masculinity, and that there is a distinction between respectability and reputation, right? Where reputation is based on internal systems of uh, uh, internal social systems of interaction and respect is about a legal or an external system. Um, I'm giving you a very, a big gloss, right? It's actually a large body of literature. Um, But thinking about the fact that, you know, Dominican LGBTQ activists, like, already always fail at embodying respect because we are queer, right? Because we are LGBTQ, because we are, we don't follow the Christian colonial presumptions of gender and sexuality. And so um, listening to my interlocutors like talk about respect as being worthy of living, being worthy of existing, as opposed to uh, being about performing certain kinds of masculinity was very, very powerful or certain kinds of class respectability or racialized respectability. It was very much about having, you know, the respect to be true to oneself or having the respect to have a dignified life, right. Or having, um, or understanding respect as navigating um, navigating identity in a way that doesn't cause harm to self or others. And so this I, understanding of respectability was really, when I was finally able to tease it out, I realized that it was a way of collectively collectively pushing back against these ideas of respeto, right? Collectively pushing back against these ideas of, of heteronormative cis masculinity, and really thinking about reputation as the capacity to stand your own ground um, and to really stand in your own truth, um, super, you know, which basically supersedes any sort of Christian colonial moral right of respect and reputation. And, um, and it acknowledges and signals the kinds of sexual terror that LGBTQ people experience. And you're right. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of violence on an ongoing basis. It's what I call sexual terror. And it's, you know, it's the constant like policing of bodies, constant policing of gender, the constant policing of, of sexuality. 
and the idea of LGBTQ people as failed citizens, right, and failed moral subjects. And LGBTQ people, activists specifically, enact respeto as a way of streetwalking, as a way of claiming moral authority that's informed by the logics of honesty, right, the value of, like, being being true, being honest, being yourself, and not giving in to the heteronormative presumptions of Christian coloniality and Christian moral authority. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like reading about that part of the book um, where when you when you talk about flipping the script, um, because people are quite adept and very, you know, you know, it requires you to be on your feet, you know, in that moment and and react. Um, and people are doing that, um, you know, in the face of. Um, you know, po- other possible repercussions. Uh, that was really interesting and, and very brave. And um, when you were talking about like lives and existence um, and, and the title, you know, has LGBTQ lives and protest. Um, and so, so I wanted to turn to your, to your chapter uh, on media. Um, and so as someone, so I study alternative media in Brazil, and I was really happy to see that the final chapter um, on Quentos focuses on um, heavily on media production. And uh, these Quentos enable LGBTQ people to make themselves um, protagonists in their own study, in their own stories. And so I was particularly struck by some of the films that you talked about and their use of the banal um, and, and, and how they seem to show like LGBTQ people engaged in just very everyday acts and like quotidian situations. And for me, this emphasized the life part of the LGBTQ lives in the title. Um, and so I wondered if you could tell us how these films um, are, are a strategy of resistance as well for LGBTQ people. Absolutely. Oh, man, the film. One of the things I love about the um, Dominican LGBTQ movement is that they sponsor every year a film festival. And it's not just international films. They also show all of these shorts um, and compilations by Dominican queer LGBTQ filmmakers. Um, And that has always been so incredible because you know, from from PSAs, right, from public service announcements that are, are shown as films and that are presented as films um, to uh, feature length uh, compilations like the one I talk about in this book, Afuera Hay Aire, Outside There's Air. Um, and every year, every year you just see all of this talent and you see how LGBTQ artists activists are taking their own narratives in their own hands and really being the primary agents and authors of those narratives. And that's why this chapter was so important to me because it's part of my value system as a researcher and as an ethnographer, it's part of my methodology uh, to not to not uh, to always work against the objectification of others, right? So to always work against the, the the inherent objectification that's created through the process of research, and to be able to talk about this film compilation that took place during the course of my research, like I, I was I got to see people and talk with people before they started this workshop, this film workshop for Afuera uh, Aire. I got to talk with them as they were making the films and I got to talk with them after they presented them as part of the LGBTQ film festival. And then were able, I was able to even like bring some of the filmmakers uh, to Yale when I was a student there. And then they were able to go to other places uh, throughout the United States, Puerto Rico, Latin America with this film. And, um, and, you know, it's, it's just such an, it's a great compilation. And it was part of this workshop that was sponsored by um, the Spanish Cultural Center and the French Cultural Center, right? These institutions that are basically the civic institute, the civic branches of the EU, right? And they, um, and the filmmakers, the activists just really rolled with it and went with it and made these films. And, um, And I guess these films are a way in which activists are articulating not just their own narratives, but they're archiving the stories of their own community. So what I, you know, with the compilation, Mirla Hernandez Nunez, who 
wanted to be a filmmaker, right? And because of life, like then access to resources, her, you know, things got complicated and she ended up is is one of the most well-known activists and, you know, and has ended up doing all of this other kind of media related work. Well, her voice at the beginning of this film compilation is just so powerful because she's taking us through her everyday life. She's showing how, you know, she's a lesbian in the midst of all of this life that's happening. And I think part of the purpose of the film that was shown, not just in the LGBTQ film festival, but was, was part of the material that people brought home to their families, right. Or brought like to their communities of friends and then became part of these international conversations. They are that space of agency. They are a way for people to tell their own stories on their own terms. And so it's, you know, it, this was an important compliment to like my own interpretations and my own analysis because, um, because it's their voices and their words. And I wanted to amplify them, amplify those voices and amplify those stories and really talk about how cuentos, how the creation of these alternative archives through media, through storytelling, through like social media and photography, right. And, and just through spending time together, allows us to find each other and allows us to articulate relationship, place, and history in a context in which history is already being told to our exclusion, right? So I talk about cuentos as a form of archiving, as a form of resistance, uh, because it challenges It challenges like narratives of who Dominicans are, for example, it challenges narratives of gender and sexual categories, and it brings to it re it allows people to reframe their own experiences of violence in a very direct and powerful way. Um, and it really just undermines the silences that are imposed by, by the society. Um, so I also think that there's something really important when people place themselves as, the protagonists, right, within these, within these narratives. Um, it, it's, it, these stories are taking place when the, when the Caribbean is already conceptualized as this, like, really anti-LGBTQ context, which it is, just like, uh, you know, so many other contexts around the world. It's not exceptionally so, right? Like, it's, you're not any more likely, you know, to be Uh, killed in the Dominican Republic than you are in Brooklyn, right? The, the number of trans murders in this country is incredibly high, especially if you're Black and Latina or Native, you know? Um, and so, you know, there's a way in which there's, there's a way in which the Caribbean's always construed as the space of exceptional violence against LGBT people, LGBTQ people. And these narratives, these films, these stories allow for an alternative narrative to emerge that I think is very, very important. Um, and I wanted to highlight in my, in, in the presentation of my research and also just because I, I'm just so moved and, and awestruck by the work that artists are creating in the DR, the artists activists are creating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seemed really, um, it seemed really interesting. And I think that what you said now about the space of exception is so important because that's the dominant idea. I think at least I think for many in the United States and yet, you know, your book really shows that, um, you know, life continues, right? There are the people, um, LGBTQ people exist and they're living their lives. Um, and they're, you know, and they're resisting as well. Um, and so, you know, that these ideas of exception don't, don't allow for that kind of, you know, that kind of idea, that kind of presence, but you show that, of, of course, there are people there um, doing that kind of work. Um, yeah, and the banality part, I mean, right, so, you know, our idea of, like, what lesbian activism is, for example, in the context of the U.S., you know, may be shaped by our understandings of class and race, right, in the U.S. And the fact that the line the kind of lineage of, of lesbian and gay activism explicitly, and I'm being intentional when I say that, is by white middle class lesbians and gay men, right? And like, and sometimes to the exclusion of people of color, sometimes to the exclusion of bi and trans people, um, bisexual and transgender people and transsexual people and um, gender non-binary folks and intersexed. Um, and the LGBTQ movement in the U.S., you know, really has been shaped by the dynamic of, of white 
of whiteness, right? And white supremacy. And so to, you know, to your point of the banality, like really even seeing film clips of people like walking through their, their barrios, right? Or going to get their hair cut or uh, drawing in their bedrooms, right? Is also ser- serves to underscore this idea that like, lesbianism, gayness, transgenderism, bisexuality, like people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, transgender in the Dominican Republic are not just part of the sex economy, right? Are not just part of this kind of middle-class idea of who activists are and also are not just about like the tourist economy either, that, that we're in all of these different spaces. Mm-hmm. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So my next question um, is kind of self-serving for me, but I think other people would be interested as well. And it's about the the writing of the book. Um, And so you released this book, Streetwalking, as well as another book at SUNY Press called Queer Freedom, Black Sovereignty, which congratulations, I saw won the Ruth Benedict Prize from the Association of Queer Anthropology in 2020. Um, so my question is, how did you manage to write and publish two books at the same time? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm a writer. I was a writer before I went to grad school, right? So I have a very strong writing discipline. Um, and I really do think that I was like, I I went against the advice of senior colleagues who said you should wait until after tenure to publish your second book because the second book, Queer Freedom, Black Sovereignty, couldn't wait. It needed to come out when it needed to come out and it was ready to do so. Um, Both books are an outgrowth of my dissertation research and I think of them as twins where they're, you know, there are places where they're in conversation and there are places where they're looking in completely different directions. And I think that that in some way speaks to the, some of the incommensurability between black and queer scholarship, black studies and queer study scholarship, and some of the places in which we can't find each other. Um, you know, and as someone who is black and queer and, you know, and Dominican, Latina, you know, what, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like that i I'm particularly attuned to these sites of incommensurability. Um, so both books, you know, the Streetwalking was the book that I was workshopping, was the one I was showing to presses, and Queer Freedom, Black Sovereignty was the book that had to come out. And it and the way that it happened was really beautiful. You know, I just was working on it at the same time that I was working on Streetwalking. And I was also working on a novel and also working on poetry, right? Like, I, I always have multiple writing projects going on at the same time. Um, and that's always been one of my strategies as a writer to manage writer's block is to work in different genres and to always have more than one project going. Because if I'm blocked around one project, I can focus on another. And by focusing on the other, I'm then able to come back to the original project, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, I, I, I had a poetry book that came out in 2017. I have a novel that I'm finishing now. I'm just a writer. I write. I That's like, you know, if I could spend all of my time writing, I would. I love teaching and like writing is what sustains my soul and my spirit. And so um, I I think it's just a product of uh, the discipline I developed before I went to grad school where I just I sit down and I write my ideas and how I write and I just get them out there. Um, I think, you know, it's a product of the way in which I manage writer's block, which again is to have multiple projects going at the same time. And then I, I really do think queer freedom, black sovereignty was like the process of, it was a spiritual thing. It was just something that needed to come out into the world and it did. Um, and it surprised me as much as it surprised everybody else. And I'm really happy they're both here because I think that they're in conversation. These two books are in conversation and they're, they can help people see like I experience and how I see um, the ways in which black studies and queer studies, we still have a lot of work to do to attempt to figure out spaces of reconciliation Mm -hmm. um, and conversation. Yeah. I'm glad that they're both here as well. And I think that, that, that is awesome that you could publish both of them around the same time. That's amazing. Um, And so maybe you've already answered this question, but I wanted to ask as well. And, And so you just said, 
um, that you're the author of novels as well. And so I saw that you wrote the novel, um, at least two of them, uh, Urzili's uh, Skirt and Conjure Women. And so I wanted to ask if for you there is a, re- a relationship between writing fiction and ethnography, like does one practice inform the other? Um, mm-hmm. or how does that work for you? And maybe you already answered it before, but if you have anything more to say about that. Yeah, I do think it's a different question. Um, yes and no. So the same sensibility I have as an author where I'm, you know, like sometimes you will say like, don't be friends with a writer because they'll write a, they'll write you into their books. You know, that's like something that people joke about with fiction writers and they joke about it with ethnographers too, but it's not funny with ethnographers, right? Because with ethnographers, there's this kind of different ethical uh, question that takes place, right? About, about power. And with novelists, I mean, with novelists, those, I think those questions are still there. They just look really different. Um, And so that sensibility of like absorbing everything that's happening around me, like, and watching and observing and like taking it in and having that, like hearing dialogue or discourse, like, you know, hearing dialogue, excuse me, or like seeing things happen in the world, those things end up in my fictional work, but my fictional work is a work of fiction. Like nobody in my fictional work is, is real. There's no, you know, there's nobody that it's based on. It's not, it's not based on, you know, my aunt, or it's not based on my own experience. It's a a work of fiction that incorporates my observations and it incorporates my conversations with my characters and the construction of fictional worlds. And with ethnography, you know, um, I, I have to pay attention and be, be true to what, to what people are actually saying. Right. So I can't just make it up. (laughs) So, um, I think that the only places where they really, and, and what I do think, how I do think my fictional work and my poet, my poetic work explicitly shapes my ethnography is in my attention to language and the craft of writing ethnography. So I think of ethnographic writing as another genre and I think of it as a craft. And so when I come to the page and telling an ethnographic narrative, I'm thinking about pacing and I'm thinking about sentence structure and I'm thinking about how to tell a good story on the page. Um, and, uh, the, in terms of, you know, the overlaps, I am obsessed with the question of, of black women's freedom, black queer freedom, indigenous women's freedom, indigenous queer freedom, and, you know, obsessed with this question of freedom. And I have been for 25 years, And so you'll see that question being answered in very different ways across the different kinds of texts I produce. So the way I handle that question in my poetry, I'm I'm thinking about it in my poetry, but I'm thinking about it in terms of language and breath. And the way I think about it in my fiction is about the fictional worlds of my characters. And the ways I think about it in scholarship are engaging with the, um, the literature and the pre-existing scholarship on freedom to theorize new possibilities. So um, they inform each other only because I'm obsessed with the same question. Um, and then they inform each other in terms of, you know, the, the fact that I'm always attentive to the construction of my line or my sentence. Um, and then I take risks in my writing, in my ethnographic writing that maybe other people might not take because of where they are in their own writing process. Um, and, you know, connecting with their own voices, writers. Um, and yeah, that's what I can say about that. Mm-hmm. So. No, thank you so much for that. I, I always think it's really interesting hearing about other people's writing um, practices and processes. So I, I really appreciate your answer. Um, and so the last uh, question is that finally, now that both of these books are out, um, do you have any projects you're working on now or anything coming up on the horizon that you're going to jump into next? Yes, I'm finishing a novel that I've been working on for a very long time. I'm finally ready to let it go. It's called Injured Stone. And I'll be shopping that in the next, this year, 2021, uh, starting in the spring. And then um, uh, I have a performance in May, a collaborative performance with Rosamond King, uh, Courtney, the anthropologist Courtney Morris, and performance artist Courtney Morris, Akiko Hatakayama, uh, called Sanctuary which is exploring the idea of sanctuary in our contemporary moment through embodied 
performance and multimedia. And um, my scholarly, my next scholarly project, I'm thinking, you know, I'm hoping to have a sabbatical to really think it through. But one of the things I'm thinking about is about Ogun as a hermeneutic for for theorizing blackness on the island of Española. So thinking about the figure of Ogun in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, um, historically in terms of art, in terms of ethnography, right, in, in conversations with people, and in terms of agricultural practices. Um, and then I my uh, I collaborate with uh, Dr. Alay Reyes Santos on a project called the Caribbean Women Healers. It's a digital humanities project, and it's online healers.uoregon.edu. And that project, um, in, we interviewed all these healers in the Caribbean, and we'll be continuing to interview them. But we also just got a Mellon Foundation grant to interview traditional ecological ecological knowledge keepers in the Pacific Northwest. So we're extending the project to specifically focus on uh, Native, Black, and Latinx migrant healers in the Pacific Northwest region as an extension of that project. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm working on. Multiple projects. Keep it going. (laughs) (laughs) So we will have to look out for those projects. And I'm glad you shared that link. Um, And congratulations on the Mellon uh, Fellowship. That's that's wonderful. Um, Thank you. So I have really enjoyed speaking with um, Anna Marine Lara about her book, Streetwalking, LGBTQ Lives and Protests in in the Dominican Republic. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was lovely to answer the questions and uh, such thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.